Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special conversation and poetry reading with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner, titled Poems to Live By. Welcome back to the learning community of the new school at Commonweal. Um, I'm here with my beloved friend and colleague of at least uh, 37 years, Rachel Naomi Remen. I was Uh, a baby when you met me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rachel is the medical director of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program and the director of the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness. And um, someone who uh, I have been listening to and feel blessed by for many, many years. Rachel, we know that we're living in extraordinarily difficult times. And so from the work that we've both been doing for the last 37, 40 or more years, the question of how we live uh, in these times is really a very central one. Uh, And the question of um, what have we been living by, how we seek or choose to guide our lives now. And you and I have both found that we can turn to poetry uh, to look for this kind of guidance. So Rachel, when you and I were talking earlier, uh, uh, we talked about what is a poem. And you suggested that it's a bridge between the cognitive and affective domain. Mm-hmm. And it takes you uh, to deeper levels of the affective domain. And those are the levels of meaning or calling. It's not just emotions, but something beyond emotions, uh, meaning, calling, purpose, which can be expressed better in poetry than in prose. So um, both of us and many other friends of ours, uh, part of what we do for and with each other is we trade poems with each other. We send, we email poems to each other all the time. Uh, And um, these poems are often the most powerful form of communication among us. Um, I love the quote from Brother David Steindlerast, who once said um, that uh, there are some human experiences that only poetry can bear the freight. Only poetry can bear the freight. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that's true of uh, poetry and sometimes sayings and also sacred texts, that sacred texts and poetry and sometimes sayings are the, the form of human communication in words that can bear the freight of some of the deepest uh, questions that we hold. Mm -hmm. So with that introduction, Rachel, I'd like to ask you to either start with some reflections of your own or start with one of your favorite poems. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a huge collection of poems. I've been collecting them for a long time. 
um, because I use them to teach with. I've read poems uh, to all sorts of people, and they immediately take us to a level of greater authenticity uh, than prose. And so it's a, it's a way to open dialogue at the level of being. And I have many different dialogues that I have opened. And so what I did, Michael, when you invited me to do this, is to just um, choose my favorites and see what pattern they fell into. And one of the major patterns they fall into is knowing yourself, getting a, a sense not only of who you are, but what you might be. And I find that poetry is a very powerful way to remind us that we are more than our everyday selves. So I'd like to read one of my favorites. Um, this is called Loving the Odd Child. Loving the Odd Child. And when I read, I generally read twice because my experience is if you're reading a poem of any significance, it's very hard for whoever's listening to you to take it in the first time. It's almost like you go, oh. <laughs> And on the second reading, which I, I read almost immediately after, um, you can really hear it and own it, and it belongs to you. And I would like these poems to belong to you. Some of them may already belong to you, too. So this is called Loving the Odd Child. Right. And it's a poem for our times, I think. And the poet's name is Anne Allen Kettner, A-L-L-A-N-K-E-T-N-E-R, from her book, Spells of Meaning, of Mending, excuse me, Spells of Mending. The everyday child needs socks and sandwiches, her hair combed, yes, and time to play, people to love. The everyday child needs constant care from you to keep her warm and kindly sheltered, nourished and held. But it's caring for the odd one which makes us whole again after long confusions, blundering and wishing she was normal. Love that odd little child and you will flower in unexpected ways veering off the path that others gave you to carve new and tender territory in the mysterious dark wood. Give that little odd child what she needs, softer lamplight, all day at the zoo, art supplies for breakfast, an early exit from the loud party. Maybe she wants things you think are strange, but just believe in her. Let her hold those tiny tree frogs. Let her climb down off your lap to gather strange objects, her weird collections, her need for books, her fear of people crushing plants, her awkward dislike of your friends, her terribly low pain threshold. Gather each of these up in turn and kiss them, then put them down in front of her loved. This is the new path, taking you away from normal and towards yourself, 
towards the life you deeply long for, towards the odd work, the odd lover, the odd house. You were afraid if you gave in to her, there would be no end to it. And that is true, for the odd child is a wild and tempting shamaness who, given an inch, will rise up dancing and gather you into her arms and sing her throaty off-key melodies as she wends her way through the wood and steps into her odd place in the bright and crippled and peopled world. There she will shift the balance in some small and significant way that only she will understand, having changed you so completely into yourself, you are unafraid to reinvent the world. Beautiful. You want to hear that again? I do. Excuse me. Loving the odd child. The everyday child needs socks and sandwiches, her hair combed. Yes, and time to play, people to love. The everyday child needs constant care from you, so keep her warm and kindly sheltered, nourished and held. But it's caring for the odd one that makes us whole again after long confusions and blundering and wishing she was normal. Love that little odd child that you will flower in unexpected ways, veering off the path that others gave you to carve new and tender territory in the mysterious dark wood. Give that little odd child what she needs, a softer lamplight, all day at the zoo, art supplies for breakfast, an early exit from the loud party. Maybe she wants things you think are strange, but just believe in her. Let her hold those tiny tree frogs. Let her climb down off your lap to gather strange objects, her weird collections, her need for books, her fear of people crushing plants, her awkward dislike of your friends, her terribly low pain threshold, Gather each of these up in turn and kiss them. Then put them down in front of her, loved. This is the new path, taking you away from normal and towards yourself, towards the life you deeply long for, towards the odd work, the odd lover, the odd house. You were afraid if you gave in to her, there would be no end to it, and that is true. For the odd child is a wild and tempting shamaness who, given an inch, will rise up dancing and gather you into her arms and sing her throaty off-key melodies as she wends her way through the wood and steps into her odd place in the bright and peopled world. There she will shift the balance in some small and significant way that only she can understand, having changed you so completely into yourself, you are unafraid to reinvent the world. Well, that's beautiful, Rachel. Isn't that a beautiful? I love that. I love it too. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what I'll do um, is perhaps read a little differently 
Uh, I'm not sure I'll do poems twice. Um, and I may do some briefer poems once. Uh, but, uh, but I'm going to read a, a Hafiz poem to start. As you know, Hafiz lived from 1315 to 1390. And I didn't know, he's a Persian ecstatic poet. I didn't know, maybe you knew, Rachel, his name means the safekeeper or memorizer. And his poems are known throughout the Persian world by ordinary people and used as proverbs and saying. Here's a poem of his I just ran across recently. It's called Heaven is Jealous. There are moments in moist love when heaven is jealous of what we on earth can do. And there are gods who would trade their lives to have a heart that can know human pain because our sufferings will allow us to become greater than this world. Ooh. <laughs> and then I'll read one more, um, again, reading just once. Um, again, Hafiz. We are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. One regret, dear world, that I am determined not to have when I am lying on my deathbed is that I did not kiss you enough. Your love should never be offered to the mouth of a stranger, only to someone who has the valor and daring to cut pieces of their soul off with a knife, then weave them into a blanket to protect you. Oh, read that again. <laughs> Do read that one again. I'll read that one again. <laughs> That's wonderful. We are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. One regret, dear world, that I am determined not to have when I am lying on my deathbed is that I did not kiss you enough. Your love should never be offered to the mouth of a stranger, only to someone who has the valor and daring to cut pieces of their soul off with a knife then weave them into a blanket to protect you. Where would you go next, Rachel? Well, my, my poems are very down to earth. I'm usually reading to a group of doctors <laughs> and a group of medical students. <laughs> um, this is another, this is a prose poem. And you probably have heard this. Uh, I hadn't thought about it for a long time. And in, very recently, it, it comes back again with it. Have you ever noticed this? A poem means one thing, and then life comes along, and the same poem comes back and says, aha, this Absolutely. is what I really meant. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of those, one of those, this is a prose poem. Everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sandbox in nursery school. Here are some of the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. 
back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt someone. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work some every day. Take naps. And when you go out in the world, hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seedling in the plastic cup. And remember the book about Dick and Jane and the first word you learned to read, the biggest word of all. Look, (laughs) everything you need to know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation, ecology and policy and sane living. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about three o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankie for a nap. Or if we had a basic policy in our nation and other nations to always put things back where we found them and cleaned up our own messes. And it is still true, no matter how old you are, when you go out in the world, it's best to hold hands and stick together. (laughs) I love it. Isn't that a nice one? (laughs) Do you want to hear that one again, too? Sure, sure. <laughs> all, I needed to, all I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. Robert Fulcrum, I think, was a reporter for the Kansas City Times, by the way. Most of what I needed to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sandbox at nursery school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. (laughs) Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt someone. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work some every day. Take naps. And when you go out into the world, hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seedling in the plastic cup. And remember the book about Dick and Jane and the first word you learned to read, the biggest word of all, look. (laughs) Everything you need to know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation, ecology and policy and sane living. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about three o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankie for a nap. Or if we had a basic policy in our nation and other nations to always put things back where we found them and cleaned up our own messes. 
And it is still true no matter how old you are. When you go out into the world, it's best to hold hands and stick together. <laughs> I love that. I do too. You know, it reminds me of um, another poem about holding hands. Um, I'll have to think about where that one was. Uh, but I, another, I know what it was. It was Gary Snyder. Uh, it's a poem about the future. If I, if I can find it, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it. So where I will go is to continue with Hafiz. And this is uh, one of my very favorite Hafiz poems. And this one I will read twice because it really takes two readings. It's called In a Treehouse. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny, is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely bust you wide open into an unfettered blooming new galaxy even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's grace will come. And friend is with a capital F, meaning the divine. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's grace will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. From a sacred crevice in your body, a bow rises each night and shoots your soul into God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. I just love that. I love it too. Read it again. <laughs> I will. And notice as I read it that light will do something, then love will do something, and then uh, you know, and so on. So it's it's actually a very deep poem uh, to be to be read and savored in a treehouse by Hafiz. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny, is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely bust you wide open into an unfettered blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come the friend's grace will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels and creation. From a sacred crevice in your body, a bow rises each night and shoots your soul into God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. 
You know, Rachel, one of the things I notice is that I've I've kind of stopped trying for a variety in the poems that I love the most. It's like the poems I love the most, I keep coming back to. You know, it's like verses and, and holy text that really stand out for me. There's this funny small saying that moves me deeply. See, I will not forget you. I have written you on the palm of my hand. Mm. And I think that's what we do with, with these mm -hmm. poems. And they're like a doorway into a deeper level of the world. And when we, mm -hmm. when we go through that doorway, we recognize that it's not an unfamiliar territory. It's just something we've not quite inhabited before. But we know. know it, and we know it's ours at the same time. Hmm. What would so you like I, to read next? I had another long one. I have shorter ones. Yeah. Too, but yeah. I had another long one. Um, this is uh, to follow up on um, the kindergarten poem, which says, remember the first word you learned to read, which is look. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So here's what um, a grown-up poet has to say about look, okay? Hokusai says, this is a poem by Roger Keyes, K-E-Y-E-S. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more of who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. Every one of us is frightened. Every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Will you read it again? Yeah, this, this is a, it's a more complicated poem, but a just beautiful poem. Before you read it, let me just say, our mutual friend Stuart Harantz, who co-leads the Cancer Help Programs uh, with me often, an extraordinary man. And he says, um, 
that there are some people who feel life happens to them and some people who feel that life happens with them. And then there are some people who feel life happens through them. And so that line there of let life happen through you, that's the deepest level. It isn't happening to you. It is better if it happens with you. But if it can happen through you, that is the deepest level. So that came to me as you read that poem. We'll have to send this poem to Stuart then. Yes. Yeah. What a wonderful idea. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. Hokusai says, Roger Keyes, Mm-hmm. Hokusai says, and you know who Hokusai was? He's the, the fellow who drew that big picture of the wave, the, the, the woodcut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more of who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. You know, Jim Quay wrote a note saying, as far as we know, it's the only poem Keys ever wrote. You're kidding. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Uh, <laughs> that makes and, it and, more precious. <laughs> and Gail says, Rachel, I used that poem, Hokusai says, with my fourth year healer's arts students as part of a ritual for them to make their transition to internship since they didn't have a graduation. They were very touched by it. Oh, how beautiful. Isn't that lovely? Oh, yeah, one, that's beautiful. One of your healer's arts. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So... Where I'm going to go next um, is a, uh, a poem by Stanley Kunitz. And I think it was written as he neared the age of 100. 
And he was, he lived from 1905 to 2006. He was the U.S. Poet Laureate twice. He was a friend of the great poet Theodore Rethke. And uh, he was a symbolist poet influenced by Carl Jung. Um, and I love this poem, somewhat long. I will read it twice. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own. And I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am compelled to look before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affection, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat, with my will intact to go wherever I need to go, and every stone on the road precious to me. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me, live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. Read it again. <laughs> the Layers by Stanley Kunitz, written in his advanced old age. He lived in a little house in Greenwich Village, I believe, in New York. Uh, I have walked through many lives, some of them my own. And I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind as I am compelled to look before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my faith. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat, with my will intact to go wherever I need to go, and every stone on the road precious to me. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me, live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. 
I love that poem. I love that poem too. Yeah. yeah. You know what's quite wonderful? You're reading poems that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, this is a wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. uh, opportunity to, you know, sort of increase the portfolio here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And that line of his about, I am not what I was. There is a poem by Wendell Berry, uh, which uh, has the same theme. It's like um, the Gary Snyder poem that I just mentioned about holding hands. It's interesting how um, the poems begin to form families and constellations together. Mm -hmm. And some of those constellations are grouped by the ecstatic poets or this, that, or the other. And others are just lines that connect with other lines from other poems in a mysterious way. They're a thread that, as as we weave it along, um, we can understand things that we didn't learn at the beginning. Yeah. You know, I have a a series of poems here about relationship, Mm. about how... um, we grow each other into holiness mm. and how, um, I mean, I just think, I'm just looking at your face, how, how, what a teacher you've been to me and the life that, and work we shared together, which mm. would never have been quite like that. Oh I my God, Rachel, when I think about I the impact you've had on, on my life and the lives of so many people rippling out. Uh, it's um, it's such a such grace in my life that we found each other. I suppose I think I could say, Michael, you knew who I was before I did. <laughs> well, you know that line that you just used about see each other into being. Yeah. Jennifer Stowell uh, often uses that word about the staff of the cancer help program, which has been together for you know. 35 years yes and jennifer speaks of how we we have seen each other into being it's such a beautiful line well it's it's interesting because this this is what these the next series of poems are about that wonderful how we offer each other our own significance Mm -hmm. and how we 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 see each other before well let, let me read you one this is perhaps my favorite poem, and okay. um, and I I find it difficult to put it into words what it means to me, and it, I'm it's just a standalone, and it's by Wendell Berry, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. and it's called Creation Myth, Creation Myth. Um, This is a story handed down. It's about the old days when Bill and Florence and a lot of their kin lived in the little tin-roofed house beside the woods below the hill. Mornings, they went up the hill to work, Florence to the house, the men and boys to the field. Evenings, they came home again. There, there would be talk then and laughter and the taking of ease around the porch while the summer night closed. But one night, McKinley, Bill's young brother, stayed away late, and it was dark when he started down the hill. Not a star shone, not a window. What he was going down into 
was the dark, only his footsteps sounding to prove he trod the ground. And Bill, who had gotten up to cool himself, thinking and smoking and leaning on the jam of the open front door, heard McKinley coming down and heard his footsteps beat faster as he came, for McKinley felt the pastures, the pastures' darkness joined to all the rest of darkness everywhere. It touched the depth of woods and sky and grave in that huge dark. Things that usually stayed put might get around as fish in a pond or slough get loose in a flood. Oh, things could be coming close that never came close before. He missed the house and went on down and crossed the draw and pounded on where the, where the pasture widened to the other side, lost then for sure. Propped in the door, Bill heard him circling, a dark star in the dark, breathing hard, his feet blind on the little reality that was left. Amused, Bill smoked his smoke and listened. He knew where McKinley was, although McKinley didn't. Bill smiled in the darkness to himself and let McKinley run until his steps approached something really to fear, the quarry pool. Bill quit his pipe then, opened the screen and stepped out barefoot on the warm boards. McKinley, he said, and laid the field out clear under McKinley's feet and placed the map of it in his head. Mm. Yeah. Will you read it again? Yeah. <clears throat> Creation Myth by Wendell Berry. This is a story handed down. It's about the old days when Bill and Florence and a lot of their kin lived in the little tin-roofed house beside the woods below the hill. Mornings, they went up the hill to work, Florence to the house, the men and boys to the field. Evenings, they all came home again. There would be talk then and laughter and taking of ease around the porch while the summer night closed. But one night, McKinley, Bill's young brother, stayed away late, and it was dark when he started down the hill. Not a star shone, not a window. What he was going down into was the dark, only his footsteps sounding to prove he trod the ground. And Bill, who had gotten up to cool himself, thinking and smoking, Leaning on the jam of the open front door, heard McKinley coming down and heard his footsteps beat faster as he came, for McKinley felt the, the, the pasture's darkness joined to all the rest of darkness everywhere. It touched the depth of woods and sky and grave. In that huge dark, things that usually stayed put might get around as fish in a pond or slough get loose in flood. Oh, things could be coming close that never came close before. He missed the house and went on down and crossed the draw and pounded on where the pasture widened to the other side, lost then for sure. 
Propped up in the door, Bill heard him circling, a dark star in the dark. Breathing hard, his feet blind on the little reality that was left. Amused, Bill smoked his smoke and listened. He knew where McKinley was, although McKinley didn't. Bill smiled in the darkness to himself and let McKinley run until his steps approached something really to fear, the quarry pool. Bill quit his pipe then and opened the screen and stepped out barefoot on the warm boards. McKinley, he said, and laid the field out clear under McKinley's feet and placed the map of it in his head. As I'm reading this, I realize that it's about something that I hadn't realized it was about before. It's about being a teacher, Mm -hmm. among other things. Mm. Among other things. Mm. Uh, Jim Quay sent a note to us. We were talking about seeing each other into into being, and, and Jim wrote, we hear one another into speech. That's a line from Nellie Morton. And Debbie Rummel wrote, I am a teacher of first graders. There are no more beautiful words than, quote, read it again. (laughs) And this time is filled with that exaltation and uh, with that exaltation, you know, and exaltion. No, what do I got? Exaltation and exhaustion, yes. <laughs> so let me read you, a, since you just read a Wendell Berry poem, let me read one back to you. Good. Um, and this one connects with um, the Kunitz one that I read before. There are echoes of Kunitz in this one. It's called uh, No Going Back. No, no, there is no going back. Less and less you are that possibility you were. More and more you have become those lives and deaths that have belonged to you. You have become a sort of grave containing much that was and is no more in time. Beloved then, now, and always. And so you have become a sort of tree standing over the grave. Now, more than ever, you can be generous toward each day that comes, young, to disappear forever, and yet remain unaging in the mind. Every day you have less reason not to give yourself away. I'll read it once more. Read that again, yes. Yeah, you, you remember the line uh, in the, uh, the poem I just read before about... Uh, uh, that you know that I am not what was one. I'm not what I was. Though some principle of being remains from which I seek not to depart, uh, from Kunitz, something like that. So again, you you find the same here in Wendell Berry. No, no, there is no going back. Less and less you are that possibility you were. More and more you have become those lives and deaths that have belonged to you. You have become a sort of grave containing much that was and is no more in time, beloved then, now, and always. 
And so you have become a sort of tree standing over the grave. Now, more than ever, you can be generous toward each day that comes, young, to disappear forever and yet remain unaging in the mind. Every day, you have less reason not to give yourself away. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, for for me, too, um, I'm very touched by what was written here about teaching. Yeah. And... um, I'm just blocking who wrote this. It's that the wonderful poet that we both met, Michael, originally at the Fester Institute. Mm-hmm. And this is called For His Students. It's an epitaph for a friend of his. Mm. And it, it speaks to me about <clears throat> what it means to be a teacher and um, also to, to be because teaching is such a mutual relationship, is to be brought into your own wholeness. Educare is a wonderful word. Um, It means to lead forth the hidden wholeness in another person. So educating someone and healing them are very, very similar um, paths. To lead forth the hidden wholeness. And that's always such a surprise. And then, of course, our students do the, do, do the same for us. So here's something called for his students. <clears throat> I have come to tell you that your teacher is gone much too soon. He was a good man with a good heart, and he was my friend. Everything else grows like a branch from this strong wood. He was a great teacher because he loved you, because he believed you are young horses who can not just cross the stream but drink from it. He would hold up a question like a lantern, swinging it ahead and shouting, what do you see? Then give it to one of you and hurry you into your future. So how do you love a teacher who has died? You keep swinging questions like lanterns in the dark. You tell the story of how he surprised your mind into opening. You keep the part of your soul he introduced you to awake. You challenge someone younger than you to care. You keep his tradition of always saying thank you. He was my friend. I loved him, and I loved how he never stopped looking for the roots of life. Our friend is gone much too soon. When he talked about you, his heart was in his eyes. How beautiful. Can you read it again? a beautiful poem about... Um, and as I say, this was uh, at, a, at a service for students of this man. I've come to tell you that your teacher is gone much too soon. He was a good man with a good heart, and he was my friend. Everything else grows like a branch from this strong wood. He was a great teacher because he loved you. 
because he believed that you are young horses who can not just cross the stream but drink from it. He would hold up a question like a lantern, swing it ahead and shout, what do you see? Then give it to one of you and hurry you into your future. So, how do you love a teacher who has died? You keep swinging questions like lanterns in the dark. You tell the story of how he surprised your mind into opening. You keep the part of your soul that he introduced you to awake. You challenge someone younger than you to care. You keep his tradition of always saying thank you. He was my friend. I loved him, and I loved how he never stopped looking for the roots of life. Our friend is gone much too soon. When he talked about you, his heart was in his eyes. And here's another one. Um, A lot of poems are about relationship and about... You know, in in medical school, one of the great challenges, because the message is given to you um, from many different directions, you're just not enough. You're not enough. You'll never be enough. You can never learn enough, never know enough, never. And and it's endless. And it's a source of a great deal of confusion on people's parts. So this is a, a, um, a poem I read to my students um, in the Healer's Art. And people are reading it, I think, because it's been given to them as things that they might use um, across the country and actually around the world. Um, this is called by, by Julia Castor, who used to be our poet laureate, I believe. What I learned from my mother... I learned from my mother how to love the living, to have plenty of vases on hand in case you have to rush to the hospital with peonies cut from the lawn, black ants still stuck to the buds. I learned to save jars large enough to hold fruit salad for a whole grieving household, to cube home canned pears and peaches, to slice through maroon grape skins and flick out the seeds with a knife point. I learned to attend viewings even if I did not know the deceased, to press the moist hands and look into the tear-filled eyes and offer sympathy as though I understood loss even then. I learned that whatever we say means nothing. What anyone will remember is that we came. I learned to believe I had the power to ease pain. Like a doctor, I learned to create from another's suffering my own usefulness. And once you know how to do this, to every house you enter, you offer healing. A chocolate cake you baked yourself. The blessing of your voice, your touch. I regard this as the antidote to medical school. <laughs> mm, beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> you want to hear it again? Please. What I Learned from My Mother by Julia Kasdorf. 
I learned from my mother how to love the living, to have plenty of vases on hand in case you have to rush to the hospital with peonies cut from the lawn, black ants still stuck to the buds. I learned to save jars large enough to hold fruit salad for a whole grieving household, to cube, hand can to cube home canned pears and peaches, to slice through maroon grape skins and flick out the seeds with a knife point. I learned to attend viewings, even though I didn't know the deceased, to press moist hands and look into tear-filled eyes and offer sympathy as though I understood loss even then. I learned that whatever we say means nothing. What anyone will remember is that we came. I learned to believe I had the power to ease pain. Like a doctor, I learned to create from another's suffering my own usefulness. And once you know how to do this to every house you enter, you offer healing. A chocolate cake you baked yourself. The mm. blessing of your voice, your touch. Beautiful, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think through relationship, there is a great deal that we learn. Um, I think that our significance is reflected back to us by others. Long before we see it ourselves, um, we see uh, often our shortcomings, whatever they are, they've been pointed out by a lot of people in the process of growing up. Um, but our significance is often not pointed out. And um, I think we actually learn it by looking, <laughs> uh, by being able to actually see what is going on around us and I have a couple of poems about this. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we actually teach people in words, but sometimes we teach people simply through our relationship to them. Um, and I, as you know, I'm a crazy cat lady. I have two Maine Coon cats who own me, body and soul. <laughs> when I stocked up food for this uh, for this uh, crisis that we've been in. The first thing I bought was cat food. Someone pointed that out to me. The next thing I bought was food for myself. <laughs> oh my goodness. So here's a beautiful poem by another um, poet laureate, Sharon Coonan, about animals, right? The gift of the animals, perhaps a little like meeting God, through feather, fur, or fluttery thing, to be judged not by words, but for the timbre of my voice, not by ability, but for the gentleness of my touch, and not for knowledge, but by the light that shines from my eyes, to be loved for the nature of my heart. Beautiful. The gift of animals. Perhaps a little like meeting God through feather, fur, or fluttery thing, 
to be judged not by words, but for the timber of my voice, not by ability, but for the gentleness of my touch, and not for knowledge, but by the light that shines from my eyes, to be loved for the nature of my heart. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. And then another um, poem about a cat. (laughs) And it's really a poem about significance. I think that's one of the great gifts we give one another, Michael, is that we reflect back to each other um, a greater significance than we know in isolation, that we see our significance through relationship. Um, this is a poem called Lily. Uh, it's very short. It's by Ron Cortege. I can't pronounce his name. K-O-E-R-T-G-E. <clears throat> no one would take her when Ruth passed. As survivors assessed the value of Ruth's antiques, I kept hearing, she's old. Someone should put her down. I picked her up instead. Every night I tell her about the fish who gave their lives for her, the ones in the cheerful aluminum cans. She lies on my chest to sleep, rising and falling, rising and falling, like a rowboat fastened to a battered dock by a string. Mm. I read that one again. No one would take her when Ruth passed. As the survivors assessed the value of Ruth's antiques, I kept hearing she's old. Someone should put her down. I picked her up instead. Each night I tell her about the fish who gave their lives for her, the ones in the cheerful aluminum cans. She lies on my chest to sleep, rising and falling, rising and falling like a rowboat fastened to a battered dock by a string. Oh, that's just beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> oh, my. Huh? So let me read you a couple. Yeah. Um, um, I want to read uh, two poems by African-American poets. Um, uh, one is uh, Lucille Clifton who lived from 1936 to 2010. And I didn't know her work before. Um, Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay. My one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. I'll read that again. Oh, my. (laughs) Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model, 
born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And the second poem <clears throat> I've excerpted from the great African-American poet Langston Hughes. And it, it, I think it kind of speaks to this moment. It's called a Let, Let America Be America Again. Let America be America again. I, by the way, I've condensed it. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plains seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek. I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker martyred through the years. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain must bring back our mighty dream again. Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Wow. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. Um, oh. And I think, um, the other poem, going back to um, the theme that I've been on, is um, go to, uh, actually, I'm going to read a poem by Denise Levertov, whose, whose work I really like. Um, she was, uh, um, died not too long ago. She was actually invited to be Poet Laureate, but turned it down because she felt she was too old. And she really struggled. It was in a period of time when women poets were not well treated. Um, and uh, she was born in Britain to a Russian Jewish father and uh, an Episcopal mother. And had a, her biography is just extraordinary. She came to the States, married a uh, activist and uh, was very much a part of uh, 60s and 70s activism and her poetry went into activism and 
other poets, including some of her mentors, gave her a hard time about poetry that tried to combine activism with poetry, which, as you know, is uh, does not always work. Um, uh, though Langston Hughes clearly makes makes clear that it can work. But this is one of her non-activist poems. It's called Wedding Ring. She was married to her husband, who was a, a big activist, and uh, ultimately they divorced. It was very hard for, for her to do that. My wedding ring lies in a basket, as if at the bottom of a well. Nothing will come to fish it back up and onto my finger again. It lies among keys to abandoned houses, nails waiting to be kneaded and hammered into some wall, telephone numbers with no names attached, idle paper clips. It can't be given away for fear of bringing ill luck. It can't be sold for the marriage was good in its own time, though that time is gone. Could some artificer beat it into bright stones, transform it into a dazzling circlet? no one could take for solemn betrothal or to make promises living, will not let them keep. Change it into a simple gift I could give in friendship. I'm going to read that one again. My wedding ring lies in a basket as if at the bottom of a well. Nothing will come to fish it back up and onto my finger again. It lies among keys to abandoned houses, nails waiting to be kneaded and hammered into some wall telephone numbers with no names attached, idle paper clips. It can't be given away for fear of bringing ill luck. It can't be sold for the marriage was good in its own time, though that time is gone. Could some artificer beat it into bright stones, transform it into a dazzling circlet no one could take for solemn betrothal or to make promises living will not let them keep. Change it into a simple gift I could give for friendship. So it's interesting in my own experience, the difference between the ecstatic poets whom I love so much and then the grounded poets uh, like uh, Levertov and Hughes. uh, You know, uh, again, I, I use poetry and sort of throw it into the medical morass. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one of the things that the, the more grounded poetry can do, it helps people to redefine the situation that they find themselves in. Um, I have a, a series here of short poems that I thought I'd like to read mm-hmm. because it's helped many students redefine medicine for themselves who they are, what they're doing, why they're here, where their their ability to um, befriend life lies. It validates parts of people um, in a professional world um, that don't get validated. It does them with very few words and really powerfully. And I'd just like to read um, a couple of things. Um, actually, there are four, but we're five of them here. They're very short. Okay. Um, so here's one that when I found it, I called up uh, somebody at the Institute and said, I can't remember who wrote this. And they said, you did. Because <laughs> it was a sign. 
And what it was is um, someone who had been listening to tapes of talks wrote down several things, and they turned out to be a poem. And it's called Everything Has a Deep Dream. And it is a reworking of the worldview of physicians, which is the world is broken, and it's up to you to fix it with the power of your science. Mm. So everything has a deep dream. I've spent many years learning how to fix life, only to discover at the end of the day that life is not broken. There is a hidden seed of a greater wholeness in everyone and everything. We serve life best when we water it and befriend it, when we listen before we act. In befriending life, we do not make things happen according to our own design. We uncover something hidden that is already happening in us and around us, and we create the conditions that enable it. Everything is moving towards its place of wholeness, always struggling against the odds. Everything has a deep dream of itself and its fulfillment. Beautiful, Rachel. So let me read that again, because yeah. I think this is something about the actual time that we're living mm -hmm. Yeah. I've spent many years learning how to fix life, only to discover at the end of the day that life is not broken. There is a hidden seed of a greater wholeness in everyone and everything. We serve life best when we water it and befriend it, when we listen before we act. In befriending life, we don't make things happen according to our own design. We uncover something hidden that is already happening in us and around us and create conditions that enable it. Everything is moving towards its place of wholeness, always struggling against the odds. Everything has a deep dream of itself and its fulfillment. And I read this now as a statement of right where we're standing in this world and in this country as well. So let me read you a couple of little things that basically enable a bunch of young, very beautiful people to um, recognize their calling and be able to speak from that place. Um, one was written by Vivekan Flint, who discovered in, in, in helping doctors to create a curriculum of, of wholeness for their for their their students discovered his his own voice as a poet and wrote some, as you know, very beautiful things. Um, this is what he wrote about the work that we do with the scientific medical system. In a place of silence, the one who thinks can hear the whisper of the heart. In a place of trust, the one who cures, heals, in a place of acceptance, a stone can explode into a butterfly. Let me read that again. In a place of silence, the one who thinks can hear the whisper of the heart. In a place of trust, the one who cures, heals. 
In a place of acceptance, a stone can explode into a butterfly. And a couple of other ones. Um, this is something, let's see. We, we base a lot of our teaching on generous listening, which is presence, really. It's about listening simply to know what is true for another person as they sit in front of you. And uh, to, to completely silence all those inner voices that say, is this someone smarter than I am? You know, is uh, this someone... Uh, all these questions that we're asking ourselves... Um, to silence that and simply be present to know what is true for another person. This is Yeats, of all people. It's called The Power of Silence. Mm. We make our minds so... We, excuse me. <clears throat> we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. Hmm. <clears throat> we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And one more, which is from, two more actually, they're short. From the Union, the New Union Prayer Book of 1975, the Central Con um, Conference on Rabbis, and this is another take on look. <laughs> <clears throat> Hang on one minute here. <clears throat> and this was renamed by uh, our students as a new Hippocratic Oath for Health Professionals, right? Days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. Lord, fill our eyes with seeing and our minds with knowing. Let there be moments when your presence, like lightning, illumines the darkness in which we walk. Help us to see wherever we gaze that the bush burns unconsumed, and we, clay touched by God, will reach out for holiness and exclaim in wonder, how filled with awe is this place? And we did not know it. Let me read that again. Days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. Lord, fill our eyes with seeing and our minds with knowing. Let there be moments when your presence like lightning illumines the darkness in which we walk. Help us to see wherever we gaze that the bush burns unconsumed and we, clay touched by God, will reach out for holiness and exclaim in wonder how filled with awe is this place and we did not know it. Beautiful, Rachel. 
And then the most beautiful thing of all is the, st the students write their own poems. And I collect these. They're poems about their own calling, their own dream of themselves, their own wish to make their lives count, to make a difference in the, in, in the world, in the suffering, in the darkness. Right? And this was written by a young man who was a football player before he came to medical school. And when we do, we do this as a group, we actually write as a group, and then we read out loud to each other. And he didn't write anything, so I figured he had just sort of checked out. <laughs> but halfway through the reading, he said, I'd like to just say the thing that came to me um, about the work we, we're all doing together. And he go, it goes like this. May you find in me the mother of the world. May my hands be a mother's hands, my heart be a mother's heart. May my response to your suffering be a mother's response to your suffering. May I sit with you in the dark as a mother sits in the dark. May you know through our relationship that there is something in this world that can be trusted. And that is another poem, I think, for our time. May you find in me the mother of the world. May my hands be a mother's hands, my heart be a mother's heart. May my response to your suffering be a mother's response to your suffering. May I sit with you in the dark as a mother sits in the dark. May you know through our relationship that there is something in this world that can be trusted. I think so much more can be said in poetry than in, in words, in words used in different ways. Words sometimes confuse me. Poetry rarely does. <laughs> mm. Well, let me, uh, we're coming to the end here, and I want to read um, so much I'd love to read, but I'm going to read a Rilke poem. Um, mm -hmm. I've got an ending and for poem. Me, uh, <laughs> for me, Rilke uh, stands along with Rumi and Hafiz uh, in some kind of deep relationship. Um, um, so it goes like this. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth. It's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall and clears it for a different celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more, and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. The, the image at the beginning is clearly Penelope working for, waiting for Ulysses to come back. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth it's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall 
and clears it for a different celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness, the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. You said you have one more? Yeah, it's about us, Michael. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh-huh. It's called the Velveteen Rabbit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you in a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? The rabbit asked, or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. Mm. It takes a long time. That's <laughs> why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in your joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Oh, it brings tears to my eyes, Rachel. Love you. Love you. Love oh, love you too. Mm -hmm. Well, Rachel, what a beautiful experience. I think we've, we've got a deal that we're going to keep meeting like this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so maybe we'll do another poetry exchange. We both mm -hmm. have so many. Mm -hmm. And I just want to thank all of you. Uh, uh, by the way, many of you have asked for the names of poems or authors. Uh, what we're going to do is the uh, video will be available. And uh, we're going to circulate to you the chat so that you can look at that again. And some of the poem, poets are not well-known, uh, but the well-known poets, you can always take a few lines from uh, the thing and just type it into Google and you'll get the name. And the ones who are not well-known, it's likely to remain a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> unless you can figure it out. So, um, and I also want to ask all of you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the itinerant monk who walks around with my little tin cup uh, banging it. Uh, so if you love these, or if you like these uh, learning community Friday morning webinars, uh, we do this on a homeopathic budget. And so uh, <laughs> if you haven't contributed, uh, please consider contributing. And uh, if you, uh, put it on your credit card and put what you might spend on Starbucks coffee in the course of a week or a month. Um, that would be a gift beyond imagining for us. So, um, you know, it's such a joy, Rachel, to be with you again. And thank you for making the learning community part of uh, our lives together. It's such a blessing. 
So take care all, and you will, the, the chat notes uh, will be emailed to you is how that will happen. Uh, and so you will be able to hold them, but they are only for the participants. Please don't share the chat notes uh, with people outside of this. So thank you for being part of the learning community of the new school at Commonweal. And just so you understand, the new school has, if you go to the website, tns.commonweal.org, we have, a, I think, about 250 conversations now. But the learning community is an ongoing sort of woven together community that's really about how the wisdom traditions speak to us today. That's really what it's about. And this is something Rachel has spent a lifetime thinking about. It's something I've given some thought to. Uh, so uh, this is about the, uh, the deep perennial wisdom at the heart of all the great religious, spiritual, and philosophical traditions and how those strands come together um, and what we can learn from them. Um, I'll close with a line from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which I love. He says, the acceptance of our suffering as an aid to our spiritual growth, the study of great wisdom teachings and complete surrender to the divine force within each of us. These three things are yoga and practice. I'll say it again. The acceptance of our suffering as an aid to our inner growth, the study of great wisdom teachings and complete surrender to the divine force within each of us. These three things are yoga and practice. So that's what we're doing in the learning community of uh, the new school at Commonwealth. It's a new experiment. We're grateful you're part of it. Uh, you can pass the word to your friends. Uh, we're not gonna advertise it widely. It'll all be word of mouth. Um, so bless you all and until next Friday, by the way, I don't even know yet what I'm doing next Friday, but <laughs> I'll be here with somebody and, uh, <laughs> and we'll discover what it's all about. <laughs> Take care. Be well. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Bless you. Blessings. Blessings, blessings. Rachel, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.